The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you have your Bibles or your apps, John chapter 13 is our text this morning. If you'll open them or turn them on to John chapter 13, we'll look at the Word together. Please remember the Jack Coles family in your prayers. We've got a memorial service this afternoon for Jack. Jack, long-time TBCer. Uh, he and his wife, uh, Misia, spent many years in Tanzania uh, at Machambe Hospital serving as TBC missionaries. And uh, we are grateful for our brother and his life and uh, pray comfort over his family. Uh, we are grateful for the good report we had after this last treatment. So it's no place like home. It's great to be back in uh, Temple, Texas after being away. And many in our body are going through different things. There are many opportunities in our body. If you take a look at the bulletin you received on your way in, we've got baptism coming up. If you've not been baptized since you've come to know Christ as Savior, we encourage you to prayerfully consider following in obedience in that area. And I'll remind you, we baptize uh, children 10 and older and uh, come and celebrate until then. And then we'll dunk your little ones as well. So great opportunities. John chapter 13, I'm just going to read verse 1, and then we'll look at uh, 1 through uh, 18 together. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Father, we have worshiped in song, we have prayed, and now we open the word together. Would you teach us? Spirit of God, you tell us you'll guide us into all truth. And this morning, would you guide us into truth? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is a passage about proud hearts and dirty feet. Proud hearts and dirty feet. The scriptures say pride comes before the what? Before the fall. I was reminded of that when I read the following story, how pride often comes before the fall. It's a story of a lady who was new to a community. She really wanted to be accepted by the church that she had brought her kids to. She was a single mom, and uh, she loved the place after just being there for a few weeks in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. She saw in the bulletin that there was going to be a bake sale, cake bake sale, uh, for the ladies' group, and so she decided she'd participate. She signed up for it, and then she forgot about it, and she remembered on the morning of the bake sale that she had signed up to bring a cake. She rummaged through her cabinets, found an angel food cake mix, and quickly made it, uh, drying her hair, dressing, and helping her son pack for scout camp. Uh, her name was Alice. When she took the cake from the oven, Alice realized the center had dropped down. She didn't know exactly what to do, but being a creative woman, she began to uh, put her mind to it, and she saw and came up with a roll of toilet paper. She figured she could put it in there, and then icing it over, no one would ever know, because she had concocted a plan. Her 17-year-old daughter uh, had gotten instructions that, in the next, uh, that she was to go straight to the cake sale as soon as it opened at 9.30 in the morning, and she would buy the cake, and nobody would ever know what happened. But when Amanda arrived at the sale, she found the attractive, perfect cake walking out in the hands of the church lady. You know who the church lady is? You know that lady, don't you? She had bought the cake. She called her mom immediately on her cell phone and told her what happened. Alice was horrified. She was beside herself. Everyone would nail know. What would they think? She'd be ostracized, talked about, ridiculed, have to find another church. That's all she could think about through the day and as she lay in bed that night not being able to sleep. The next day, she promised herself that she wouldn't think about it, that she would attend the fancy luncheon, bridal shower that she had been invited to, hosted by the lady who had bought the cake. 
She couldn't think of a way to get out of it. The meal was elegant. The company was definitely upper crust. And uh, to Alice's horror, when dessert time came, out came the lady carrying her cake. She felt the blood drain from her body when she saw the cake. The, the lady who was hosting was a rather arrogant lady. And the mayor's wife stood up and said, what a beautiful cake. And as the uh, hostess, this arrogant lady, had the knife in her hand, she turned to the crowd and said, I baked it myself this morning. Oh. Alice said, there is a God. <laughs> Pride comes before the... That was a hard fall right there, I guarantee you. You know, when I read that story, I'm reminded of uh, how oftentimes we do the same thing. Oftentimes we say something, we boast, or we say something prideful, and shame and guilt covers us. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of having words tumble right out of my mouth thinking, where'd that come from? And the Holy Spirit tattoos my heart and convicts me and that I'm groveling in my sin and grateful for the Savior's grace, right? We've all been there, every one of us. Words of pride, words of arrogance, taking credit for something that's not ours, or maybe uh, just stretching the truth a little bit, and the Holy Spirit convicts us. Well, what we're going to see in this passage is that the disciples fall far, and they fall hard. You see, one minute they're arguing and jockeying for position to see who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And the next minute, Jesus is washing their feet. It's a very familiar passage. And their pride caused them to fall far and hard. And so that room was filled with dirt, with proud hearts and dirty feet. That room was filled. And we can learn from the mistakes of our dear brothers who are the disciples of our Savior. Well, let's look at the setting first found in the first three verses. Now, before the feast of the Passover, let's stop right there. It's Passover time. Passover time is when the streets of Jerusalem swelled to the highest population that the city would ever see in any given year. It was a time of celebrations, a time when every family that could went back to Jerusalem. It was a time celebrating the time when the nation had been freed from bondage in Egypt. You remember at Exodus chapter 12, it was the last of the 10 plagues. And if you applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of the houses, the death angel would pass over you and the elders would be spared. And so Passover was a time of remembering when God had freed the nation from their bondage. It was also a reminder of them being freed from their personal bondage. And so Passover was a time that was enjoyed by, by everyone. The sh shops would be busy, the streets would be filled, uh, crowds would be bustling, kids would be excited. It'd be like Christmas time here. Cousins would come to play, special meals are being prepared. And amidst the cacophony of all those noises, though, there was one noise that stood out above the rest. It was the bleeding of the sheep. You see, Jerusalem would be filled with the sacrificial sheep that would be brought into the temple where, where this celebration would take place, a celebration of the shedding of blood as a reminder of the sins being covered. And it's quite interesting on this day. Well, the sheep are be bleeding below in an upper room above is the Lamb of God. And the upper room above is the Lamb of God with his own flock, his disciples, gathering them for a final word of encouragement, a final word of instruction, a final word where he would tell them more about what's going to happen next. And these instructions were coming from the lamb who was about to be slaughtered. It's pretty interesting. So far we spent, uh, this is our 25th message from the Gospel of John. So for 24 weeks, we have looked at the three years of the life and ministry of Jesus. The, the, the first 12 chapters cover three years, basically. 
Chapters 13 through 19 cover a single day. Did you hear what I said? Chapters 1 through 12 cover the first three years of the ministry of Christ. Now, now John is going to hone in. And he's going to hone in upon a single day. A single day in the life of Christ. He's going to have us look very closely. It's like a magnifying glass. And he says, I want you to know it's Passover time. We've got backup cameras in our cars. When this eye came out, I realized I needed every safety precaution we could have. Didn't have one of those. So we changed cars. And as we did that, uh, you know what it's like if you've got a backup camera. You know, you're backing into a parking place or backing in somewhere and it starts off green, then it narrows yellow and then it goes to red and, and the beeping gets a little louder and gets a little more frequent as you, as you hone in on the object behind you. And so all of a sudden it goes green, yellow, red, and frequent beeps get, get a little louder as you go along and, and it's honing in on the object behind you. And that's what John's doing. John is honing in on a single day in the life of Christ. And so John 13 through 19 is called the upper room discourse. Christ is speaking from the upper room and the events around the, 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 the passion of Christ come from that scene. So for the next, next chapters, the next seven chapters, we're going to see the life of Christ in a single day. John hones in like that camera does in your car. And he's saying, let's pay close attention to what's happened. Now, if you write in your Bibles, I would encourage you to underline the words that hour has come. Jesus knowing that his hour had come. Now, over and over in John's gospel, as we study it, we've seen just the opposite. In John chapter 2, verse 4, Mary has called Jesus to, uh, because there's a shortage of wine at the wedding feast. You remember that? And he says, woman, talking to his mom, Mary, why do you involve me? Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. And then we continue reading in John's gospel, John chapter seven, verse six, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. And then in John chapter seven, verse eight, because my time has not yet fully come. And then John chapter seven, verse 30, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter eight, verse 20, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings are put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Over and over, Christ has said, in the gospels, my, in, in John's gospel, my hour's not come. It's not come. It's not come. Now in John 13, 1, he says, my hour's come. It's here. What hour are we talking about? We're talking about the hour of death. We're talking about the hour of passion. We're talking about the time when he would sacrifice his life as the Lamb of God. In fact, it tells us that. Look, look at John 13, 1. He says, uh, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to be with the Father. So he knew that his time of death was near. His hour had finally come. And note well, the setting is around Passover. You can't miss the symbolism here. Jesus says, my hour has come just as these Passover lambs are being sacrificed. It's time for me, the Passover lamb, to be sacrificed as well. My hour is now here. The time of my sacrifice is at hand. As we do a deeper dive into John chapter 13, verse 1, it also says this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And what we see is the love of our Savior. When, when, what Jesus says and what Jesus does in the rest of this chapter, when he washes the feet of the disciples, he says and does this out of his love for them. And it's a great example to us because the reason we serve, the reason we serve others, the reason we serve those in need. You see a lot of people around here with TBC Launchpad t-shirts on. The reason we serve, the reason we do these things is because the Savior has first loved us. How could we not love others back? 
And as his grace comes to us, it overflows. And one of the ways it overflows is us being servants to others. And so as we look at what God has done for us, if we want to be like our Savior, we are going to love others to the very end. You know, Bev and I were reflecting as we were, I can't remember, either in the hospital or traveling back. Everything's kind of running together right now. My mind, of all this taking place, but how much we love you. Uh, August 15th will be 37 years we're here. I mean, that's, that's absolutely amazing. It's a great gift that's been given to us. But you know, one of the things we, we're talking about, one of the reasons we, we enjoy this so much is because we love you. I look around this room and I, you know what I see? I see story after story after story after story of God's grace. I, I see the work that Christ has done in your hearts. And it's absolutely amazing to me to see the goodness of God. In the privilege of being one place for a long time, you just see the work of the Holy Spirit and you, you, you see these little buds begin to bloom and, and you see them become, become fruit bearers. And it's absolutely amazing. We've got a deep abiding love for you. You love those babies you rock in the nursery, kids you shepherd, small group you lead or a part of. You see somebody hurting? You know, when we have been loved as Christ loved us, we should love back. I read two books in the last few weeks, well, I read a bunch of books in the last few weeks. Uh, you get at a, you know, you get treated and you spend a couple of nights in ICU or night or whatever it is and then you go to a room you don't feel the greatest and so you do a lot of reading. I, I don't like noise at that time so it's easy to pick up a book and read. And uh, I read two books by a guy named Bob Goff, Love Does, and uh, what's the other one that just came out? Always something. But, but, but they're good reads. He is a great storyteller. Sometimes a little short on substance, but he's great on storytelling and motivating you to love others like Jesus loved. As reading that book, I thought about this body. On my way in this morning, I met two families at that door who just got kids last week that they're fostering. I thought, that's a great display of love. I watched my staff come and go this morning, seeing kids that have been adopted. What a great display of love. Sam prayed in between services and one of the, or in between sets of music back there, my friend Sam, and one of the things he said is, Lord, for those that uh, have the gift of liberality, let us give generously. And I can't tell you the, the, the stories that I have of the way you generously supply not just for this body but for other people in need over and over and over and over again things like our mercy team this afternoon we're going to host this memorial service for our brother jack coles and mercy team you put something in the, on the website and all of a sudden every slot is filled I, I could go on and on and on and on you gave us if you were here a couple of months ago you gave us a chest full of notes that you wrote to encourage Bev and myself. I started reading those notes. My allergies got so bad when I was reading those notes, it was absolutely terrible. I'm reading those notes, hydrate, 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 hydrate. I mean, this is a body that loves well. And I pray, I pray that we're known by that. And so Jesus loved him to the end. I read that and I wrote down in my notes, Gary, who'd you give, who have you given up on? You going to love them to the end? Anybody you gave up on, you going to love them to the end? Oldest person I baptized was 88 years old. 88 years old. His family never gave up on him. Never gave up on him. 
They prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for decades. And Harry came to faith. Give up on anybody? Well, that's all in verse 1. We're going to speed things up here. If, if there was ominous music that was getting ready to play, or if this is a movie, ominous music would begin playing because verse 2 is a foreshadowing. What's going to happen? During supper, the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. There's the ominous music. Ominous music. Uh, we're going to pick that up in verse 21 next week, and we're going to see Judas betraying our Savior. But as John often does, he kind of forecasts what's going to happen. Jesus, knowing the Father, had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God, was going back to God. So the setting is, Jesus knows where he's headed. Jesus knows that his time has come, that his time is at hand, the hour is at hand, that, that the, the hot breath of death was breathing down his neck. And we move from the setting to the explanation of what happens next. The explanation of what happens is very simple. You've seen it before. We've looked at this passage before. You've studied it before. You see, what happens is the disciples are actually arguing. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're arguing about who's going to sit at the right hand and who's going to sit at the left hand when he comes to his kingdom. As they argue, there's a basin sitting in the corner that is untouched. There's a towel on the floor that's unused. There's clothing that hangs from a hook and it's unworn. Each disciple sees these things. Each disciple knows their purpose, but no one moves except Jesus. As they bicker, he stands. He doesn't speak a word. He removes his robe. He takes the servant's wrap off the wall. He takes the pitcher of water. He pours the water into a basin. He picks up a towel, and he gets on his knees, and he begins to wash the dirty feet of the disciples. The towel that covers his waist becomes a towel that dries their feet, and I want to scream with everything in me, stop it. Stop it. James, John, you're going to wash their feet. Peter, you're going to wash his feet. See, these guys have been arguing. John, hey, I deserve it at the right hand. I'm the beloved disciple. Uh, Peter, hey, I walked on water. Andrew reminded him, yeah, but you thrashed around in the deep too, bro. And the simple task, see, they, they didn't have asphalt and concrete in those days. You walked down dusty trails and dusty paths in those days. The dirtiest part of your body would be your feet. And so it's customary for the host of any dinner, of any gathering, to have a servant of the door. Oftentimes it would be the oldest or perhaps a handicapped servant, and he would be selected to wash the feet of the guests as they came in. But because they had proud hearts, everybody had dirty feet. Nobody would take care. Of, nobody had taken care of this simple task. And so, Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of God, the One who had been in heaven in the presence of Father, the One who's the name above all names that we want to surrender all to, begins to wash the dirty feet of the disciples. And I don't know. I look at a picture like this, and I think of the guilt and the shame of those men when Jesus picks up that rag and begins to wash their feet. First time I had my feet washed was in Manipur, India. We've been asked to do a pastor's conference there. It was a Lord's pastor's conference, five or six hundred men. 
it, it, was, it was an interesting gathering. These were three tribes that had come together for the first time in 12 years. There had been some tribal warfare and fighting. We didn't know all this when we went. And so it's the first time they come there. They actually have security in case something breaks out among pastors. Imagine that. The week went well. It was an amazing week. We saw six of those pastors come to faith in Jesus. Pastors. We didn't know how they were going to... I mean, they... they at the, at the last day, um, two things happened that were quite interesting. One, these people had been cannibals years ago, and so um, we had pork every day. They had kept the huge hogsheads. And so they gave a hogshead to the oldest guy, the guy that came the farthest, and they, they got these sacks of hogshead they're carrying off. That was a little bizarre, to be honest with you. But the second thing that happened is they called myself. I was a keynote speaker, and I think there were four or five others with me from here. They sat us in a chair. And then they brought out this basin. They brought out these rags. And I'm the first one seated. And they call. I say, who's the oldest pastor here? They start having this count off between these guys. And I can't remember the age of the guy who was. He was in his 70s. I can't remember the exact age. This old man, decrepit, arthritic, climbs up about that number of stairs and he comes to where I'm seated and he gets on his knee and he unties my shoe and then the other shoe and he takes my socks off starts washing my feet. I couldn't see a thing. Just a watery veil of tears. This decrepit old man washing my feet. Imagine what it was like for disciples to have Jesus Christ washing their feet because their hearts had been too proud to serve one another. So our Savior does the unimaginable. I think, don't do it. You know where their feet are going to be soon. You're going to be sweating blood. They're going to be sawing logs. They're going to make promises they don't keep. You're going to be carrying a cross, and guess what? Not one of them will be there to pick it up. Some stranger will be called out of a crowd to do it. And I think, for me personally, I want to say don't do it. And maybe it's because we don't want our God doing those types of things, or maybe it's because we don't want to do those types of things. You see, we all have double-tongued, promise-breaking, fair-weather friends, don't we? Happen to each of us. See, disciples would make promises they couldn't keep. They would say things they wouldn't do. And maybe, maybe you were not left alone at the cross, but maybe you were left alone at the altar, or maybe you were left alone with the bills or with the kids for another lover, or left alone with the illness or holding the bag. Maybe the vows were forgotten, the contract was abandoned. And when Jesus kneels to wash the feet of the disciples, I can't help but think he's washing our feet as well. You see, when I pick up the scriptures and read it, it says in verse 5, he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel, which he had girded himself. And he came to Simon Peter and he said, Lord, do you want to wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said, what, what, do I, what I do you don't realize, but you shall understand soon after. And Peter said, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. 
See, I think what Jesus is saying, I'm taking the dirtiest part of who you are and cleansing it. And isn't that what he does for us? He takes the dirtiest part of who we are, our hearts. And he says, let me wash it so you can be part of me. Let me wash it. And we say, no, 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 I can do it myself, right? I can do this. No. He doesn't say, you wash your feet. He says, I'll wash your feet. If I do not wash your feet, you're not going to have any part of me. And so the Savior takes the dirtiest part of who we are, these filthy rags, and he changes us. And Jesus goes from man to man to man, and he washes their feet. The example, that's what this is. Look at verse 12. And so when he had washed their feet, by the way, their feet would include whose feet? Judas's feet. I, I've looked to see if that's not the case. It's not. Judas was still there. Taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. If I then, being the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I give you an example that you should do as I do. Wash feet. And be a foot washer. If you want to be like Jesus, you're going to wash feet. What does that translate to in our day and age? It means serving one another. That's what it means. He was a servant to them. In fact, that's what he says in Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give a ransom as the many. You remember the WWJD bracelets that we wore around for a while? You want to be like Jesus? You become a servant. That's what you become. And we have to humble ourselves and become servants to him and to one another. We've got six minutes left. You know, I'm not going to let you out early. I'm going to use every six minutes, okay? So four final lessons, four final lessons. First of all, you can't read this passage and not see the humility that oozes from every pore, the body of our Savior. The humility of our Savior. Taking the most humble position in that culture. Taking the most humble position in that culture in serving those around him. God hates the proud. He opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. I like what Mark Twain said. I've used it before. Mark Twain said, anytime you become prideful or think you have influence, try ordering someone else's dog around or your own cat. He's right. He's right. Humility. I look around this room and I see people successful at work, people successful in careers, people successful with their families. I I, I mean, it's amazing the way God has blessed you. Make sure he receives the glory. Make sure that you, you raise your hands to his glory with everything he's given you. Corey Ten Boom, who has been given award after award after award because of the book she's written. And if you're familiar with the story, she and her family uh, served and saved many Jewish people during World War II. A reporter asked her, don't you have trouble keeping humble after being honored so greatly? Without hesitation, she said, when Christ was riding into Jerusalem and people were throwing palm branches, 
before him, crying all honor to him. Do you think the donkey thought all that was for him? I am but a donkey, and Christ deserves these honors alone. To God be the glory, great things he has done, is what I say. Secondly, you can't read this passage and not only see the humility of Christ, but see the servanthood of our Savior. See the servanthood of our Savior. I mean, he became a servant to those that are around him, and that's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be servants. D.L. Moody said, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many people he's serving. We are called to be servants. If you look in the bulletin, I had our administrative assistants do something a little different this time. You notice there's an extra page in there. Uh, the top of that page says, it says service opportunities. I didn't want to go through a message like this without giving you the opportunity to respond in some way. And there are multiple service opportunities in our body. A body this size has many things that's going on. Mercy teams, cooking meals for those when, when there's a funeral or when there's the joy of a birth of a baby. Uh, our go-to guys. I love to, I, I get forwarded all the go-to guys information. Go-to guys fix, do small fix-it projects for people in the church, uh, especially for our widows and single moms. And, and they do these jobs and uh, it, it's, it's amazing. Rory Heish heads that up. And uh, week after week after week, I, I read emails about these needs and almost immediately it's I'll take that. I'll do that. I'll take care of that. I can handle that. It's amazing to watch the response. Family and kids ministries, we're a growing body. We see God doing a work. That once school gets back into session, typically our attendance increases by 25 to 30%. And so it's amazing. We need to be ready there. We need greeters. We'd love to have parking lot greeters once that happens so we can direct people to where they need to go, et cetera, et cetera. There are multiple things in here. You can respond. There's a place you can tear off on the bottom and respond to that. I, I would tell you this, that if you know the Savior and you walk with the Savior and you honor the Savior, we need to be serving the Savior and serving one another, not just within the body, but the needs in our community as well. Jesus wasn't modeling servanthood. Jesus was a servant. He wasn't feigning something, just role-playing to teach us something. He was, letting us, he was letting us see who he was. He was being himself. Thirdly, unconditional love. I read about this, and I see Judas's feet being washed, and I think I'd wash his feet in scalding water. That's what I'd do. Waterboarding? Probably okay here. I mean, really, that's my heart, which is wrong. I see a Savior who loved even the one who was going to betray him. The reason why one of the, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, to love your enemies. The reason why in Romans he tells us to do that and not seek revenge. You see, he has an unconditional love for us and our love should be unconditional for others. And finally, all this is packaged in the Passover theme. All of this has to do with forgiveness. Hey, Peter, you don't let me wash you? You're not part of me. Hey, Gary, bring your dirtiest, stinkiest sins here, and I'll forgive them. For some of you, that's for the first time. For some of you, know, you know the Savior, but you've walked away from him. And he says, bring, bring it here. I can take the dirtiest part of what you've done, that lying, that adultery, that cheating, that stealing, that taking what's not yours, and I can change it forever. You may serve without loving. That's possible. You can serve people without loving people. But you can't love without serving. If you love, you're going to find people to serve. 
somewhere, somehow. Chad was nine years old. He was socially awkward. He was shy. He was quiet. One day he came home and told his mom, it was just before Valentine's Day, he'd like to make a Valentine for everybody in his class. His mom's heart sank. She thought, I wish he wouldn't do that because she had watched the children as they all walked home from school after the school bus dropped them off and her Chad was always behind the other kids. The other kids would be laughing, hanging on to one another, talking to each other, but Chad was never included. Nevertheless, she decided she would help him, so she purchased paper and glue and crayons and all the Sharpies and stuff that he would need. And for three whole weeks, night after night, he painstakingly made by hand 25 Valentines. Valentine's Day came and Chad was beside himself with excitement. He carefully stacked them up and put them in a bag and bolted out the door. His mom decided to bake him his favorite cookies and serve him up warm with a nice cool glass of milk when he got home from school, knowing how disappointed he would be because he would pass out his Valentine's, but she was afraid he would receive none. That afternoon, she kept an eye out. Sure enough, the bus came. All the kids hopped off. There was Chad behind all of them. They were all talking and having a great time, and Chad was bringing up the rear alone. She wanted to cry. She saw his hands were empty. No Valentines. But Chad burst through the door. Couldn't contain himself. His face was aglow, and he screamed out, Not one! Not one, Mama, not one! Her heart sank. And he said, I didn't forget a single one. God, help us to be like Chad. Our eyes fixed on others, not ourselves. Because that's what you did for us. It's so easy for us to focus on me, myself, and I rather than you and your sheep. Thank you for a Savior who took those proud hearts and washed those dirty feet and who takes our pride hearts and washes our dirty hearts to your glory. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Bless you.